Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario with a story today that's going to take us all the way to the other side of the country from where I currently sit. We're heading out to New Denver, British Columbia, a small town a little southeast of Kelowna, and it sits right on the shores of beautiful Slocan Lake. A very small community, about 500 people live there year-round. A lot of hiking trails, a lot of campsites in the area. It's really an outdoorsy type of a place. But along the shores of Slocan Lake in the 1940s, during the Second World War, it was also the site of the New Denver Sanitarium, which was one of the sites where Japanese Canadians were interred during the Second World War. And currently, there is the Nikai Internment Memorial Center out in New Denver, which is there to uh, preserve the stories of those who were interred there. And uh, they also have interpretive displays, and they have some artifacts from that period. It's a National Historic Site, and it's run by the municipal government out there in New Denver. After the Second World War, following the internment of Japanese Canadians at the site, it was repurposed in the 1950s. And the sanatorium was converted with more dormitories. And in the 1950s, the children of Russian Dukobors were interred at the site. They were children from the Sons of Freedom. Uh, this was a group that really opposed things like public education. And the uh, Canadian government, the provincial government in BC, made the decision that the children would be taken from their families and sent to public school and they would live in the sanitarium. And the parents were only permitted to visit the children on two Sundays each month. And they were only allowed to, to visit with the children through a chain link fence. And that is where the title of a new book comes from. It is called The Kissing Fence. It is by Brian Thomas Peter. It is a historical fiction that looks at the ramifications and the long-term effect on the Russian Dukobor community out in BC that all stems from the internment of these children in New Denver. And the, the book follows two parallel tracks. We have two children in the 1950s, uh, Pavel and Nina, who are living and going to school in New Denver. And we see them try to navigate this experience. They're trying to protect the younger children from mistreatment. They're not allowed to speak their first language. They're, they're going through this very traumatic experience together. So we follow that story, but we also jump ahead to a parallel story happening in 2018, where we see William, who has rejected his Dukobor heritage, and he's living his life until he suffers an accident and gets some uh, medical news that, that is discovered during his visit to the hospital following his accident. And we see his life start to spiral a little bit. And these two stories eventually converge as we start to see the implications and the impact 
of intergenerational trauma on families and the tensions that can come out of that. It's a, a wonderful book. It's a, a fascinating way to tell this type of a story, a story that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention in Canadian history. It's it's kind of one of these local stories that uh, I think, you know, in, in my discussion with Brian, he mentions that folks out there have some knowledge of it, but it's certainly not something that has gotten a lot of national attention. And the way that it's told in this book, it uh, it really is compelling for readers, uh, for sure. There, it's, it's one of those books that I would definitely recommend picking up if you get a chance. So that's what we're talking about today. I had the opportunity to talk with Brian earlier. We did have Brian on the telephone, which certainly isn't ideal, but uh, you know, I was very excited to have the opportunity to speak with him, and I think you'll definitely enjoy the conversation. So without any further ado, let's get to my chat with Brian Thomas Peter. All right, and Brian Thomas Peter joining us from out west today. Brian, how are you? Very well, thanks. Good to be on your show. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today to talk about The Kissing Fence. Now, in my intro, I, I tried to tee up what the book was for the audience a little bit. But given that the, the book has these parallel tracks in it, as I mentioned in the intro, what is the premise of the book and how would you explain it to somebody who's coming to the book, a potential reader? I actually was writing the book not about um, the 1950s. I was, you know, the book started as being um, a book about a modern-day capitalist fellow who was doing everything well and um, in accordance with the rules, as it were, nearly, um, who gets into a great deal of trouble. And uh, he gets into trouble because he loses the heritage of his um, of his, uh, his his culture and his family. He abandons all of that. And that causes him great concern. And as he gets into trouble, he reflects about how he might want to change his way, if he can change his way at all, and find his way back. And essentially, it's a story of redemption, I suppose, in, in that way. So that, that's interesting because, you know, I, I think of this story as, as when I, I found out about the book and went through it, that I would have assumed that the starting point was that 1950s. So how did you come to that part of the story and just discover it and want to include it in the book? Well, I was concerned about somebody who had abandoned values, as I was saying, and, and then seeks to rediscover them. But it suddenly made, it became clear to me that that was a rather hollow tale. So what I needed is a backstory. I needed to very clearly specify what he had abandoned, where he had come from, what his heritage was, and uh, why that was so important in what, when he deviated from that, that he then finds himself um, uh, in, in difficulties. And then the reader would then know what he was needing to get back to in order to save himself. In the course of my research and developing this storyline, I discovered the, the Duke of Wars, which I knew from years back, uh, but I was I, I was renewed to them. And uh, that story seemed perfect because the Duke of Wars have got such a clarity of moral principle that it was easy to use that as uh, a line against which we could measure how far my protagonist, William, in the story deviates um, from, from that. So it, it was a very helpful story. The other problem with having done that is the story of the Duke of Boys during the 50s and, and even before that um, is just riveting. It's such a powerful story. It tells us so much about the modern era 
uh, and we can learn so much from the Dukabo people um, that it couldn't really be simply a backstory. So it started to become prominent in the tale, and it has then equal weight and allowed me to express the, an issue that I like to get um, in touch with, that transgenerational trauma, which um, is very popular in other in other literature, and also we talk about it quite a lot in respect of indigenous population and so on, and indigenous populations around the world. But um, this is a new population in which we can see this, and I was able to articulate that particular issue um, uh, into the modern times. So that issue, though, of the Duke of Bors in Canada, and that being such an essential part of, of this story here, you know, as a historian myself, I'm, of course, always curious as to how people go about, especially, you know, creative writers in particular, how they go about including historical content into their books. So for you, where is the balance in this particular story, especially since, again, the stuff from the 50s is is coming later in the process, where is the balance between going and doing that research, finding out about what happened to this particular group of people versus the artistic license that you need in order to craft the story? That's, uh, that's an interesting one. And I think the answer is that um, my background is, is in clinical and forensic psychology. So um, in, in a sense, it's about telling individual stories and it's not that different from describing character and uh, identifying or implying what a particular individual does at a particular moment as a result of context. So how that fits into history is that uh, the history becomes alive for people, and particularly for me, I suppose, that when you understand the broad swathe of uh, political, social, economic movements that are going on, um, and you, you trace the impact of that um, through a local community right down into a particular individual and then to a particular moment in time and a particular act. And that's not all that different, actually, from being a clinical and forensic psychologist, but it allows you a little bit more license because you couldn't have that latitude, of course, to construct it in quite that way in the professional world. But in the literary world, you can and so that's the balance between a, a, a literary endeavor and drawing on a broad swathe of history. And the challenge with the Duke of Wars, of course, is there's a couple, there's so many challenges, but the particular ones is that there's just so many iconic experiences that they've gone through. And to choose one or two of them, as I've done in the book, and draw those that thread right through to an individual to a particular moment, even perhaps across generations, doesn't do justice to the whole of it. And so that's the limitation of the, that balance you're talking of. But that, that sort of leads into the next question then about how much can one story be representative of a larger group and a larger experience? You know, you made reference to certainly indigenous people, not just here in Canada, but around the world and the stories of trauma and, and you know, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but you know, there there has been stuff that has come out about how trauma gets passed down through the generations. So in this particular case, how much can this story that you're talking about, how much is of it is specific to an individual versus being a representative example of the experience that a lot of people went through? 
Well, I would say quite a lot of it could be representative. Um, it's not an iconic experience. This is not something that happens to an individual and is somehow unique to them. The threads of, uh, that go through the life of my protagonist um, are not unique to him. The issues that happen to the, um, to the children that were in the New Denver um, sanatorium for five and a half years, you know, those, the examples there are real examples. So I interviewed a number of children who were actually incarcerated for, um, for some time uh, in, in New Denver. And um, I've used those stories and, of course, mixed and matched them and used dramatic license and so on to... And reveal them, but almost all of them start with a kernel of truth, and um, there are they are real events. So, in respect of the children in New Denver, um, I feel confident that I've articulated a, a good deal of general issue that emerged. I know that because they've told me so. And um, a number of the Duke of War people have read those stories, and they feel that I've been reasonably faithful to the stories that they told me. And um, but I also know that there were a number of people who experienced dislocation um, of geography and psychology and uh, and so on, um, who did things very much like um, one of my two um, protagonists, Pavel, who is um, uh, one of the children who now then grows up and becomes a man during the course of the book. Um, and then also by modern-day protagonist, William. Now, the events that have occurred to them are not dissimilar from the kinds of events that have happened to a number of people from that community. Um, there was quite a lot of rejection of the Duke of Bor values um, in favor of modern-day values uh, with catastrophic effects. Um, there was a number of people who, who steadfastly tried to maintain their allegiance to a Duke of Bor, um, way of life with disastrous consequences. Often they had difficulty finding their way back and holding the, the line of their beliefs. So, you know, I feel very, fairly confident that I've not uh, turned this into, uh, use it, just use it as a tableau against which I was going to write a diff uh, another story. These are, the, these are stories which really do depict events and the kind of events that happened to a number of people. So I, I feel... It's, it wouldn't be reasonable to say that these are individualized, uh, out-of-context um, storylines. They're, they're pretty true to what really happened. So you mentioned the sanatorium in New Denver, and this is a story that I certainly was unfamiliar with. And, uh, you know, we talked before we started to record that this is very much a, a B.C. story that a lot of sort of the experiences here are, are centered in British Columbia, obviously, that's sort of where the, 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 the story takes place. But I'm curious, you know, what is the just awareness within British Columbia of the sanatorium in New Denver and what happened there? And how did you go about finding those people who had been there and earning their trust to have them feel comfortable giving you their stories that could be used in this book? I think the, to start with the awareness question, I don't think people are aware at all. And uh, if you talk to anyone about Dukabors, what they'll talk about is burning and nudity. And um, that's about it. 
they they have very little awareness of what that burning and what that nudity signifies and where it comes from and what the role of Canadian government was in causing it. Um, and that was largely due to um, a very conservative um, depiction of the Duke of War people and the uh, Sons of Freedom, who are a subset of the Duke of War people, um, uh, which was promulgated by uh, Sima Holt in a, a book in the 60s, uh, which was entitled uh, Terrorism in the Name of God. It was a completely myopic, distorted view of uh, events and missed out some critical events that led to the disruption of um, that community. Um, but it, let, it, it became this sort of standard view. And interestingly, even on some websites where there have been some blogs that I've contributed to and uh, or reports or reviews of, of The Kissing Fence, um, there have been a couple of retorts about me not taking into account, um, you know, the terrible events that w occurred. And people were, in other words, pushing back against um, a fairly liberal view of them. They didn't want the sense of being cast in the shadow. They, you know, the, the authorities of the, of the province being cast in the shadow of behaving properly. They behaved absolutely terribly. And why anyone would want to support what happened is, is difficult to imagine. But, um, there's still some pushback about that. To get on to your second question about um, you know, how did I get involved with this community, it was by chance, really. Um, I knew someone who knew someone, and I got an introduction, and those, it happened that the person I was introduced in, into the community, this is J.J. Verrigan, who is this kind of director, as it were. Uh, he'd, he'd hesitate to call himself a leader. Um, uh, of the Orthodox community of Dukabors in uh, Grand Forks um, and in, in, in BC. Um, and he uh, spoke with me at length with uh, one of his friends and introduced me to a number of other people and also to some people who were prominent in the Sons of Freedom. And there's now a growing bond between the Orthodox and um, the Sons of Freedom as were. Um, and, and it was just going there and letting them know, what, telling them openly what I intended and how I was going to use their stories. And gradually, they invited me into their homes and um, uh, made me cups of tea. And uh, we spoke for hours about, um, about their experience. And the thing that I really started to understand is that they, some of them hadn't spoken about their experiences uh, for a very long time and hardly at all. So it suddenly became an opportunity. And subsequently, what was interesting about that is that I've had comments from some um, people who've read, Dukabor people who were children in um, New Denver during the time, during the 50s. And uh, they've, they've said the same thing, that um, I'm so glad you wrote this book because now my children will know what it was like for me. Um, which suggests to me that they had struggled even to speak about these events, even with the children, even with their own families. And, and that's something that, and uh, given your professional background, certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that's something that's constant with trauma, that the, the people who experience it themselves, there's a lot of reluctance to share that with family members in a lot of cases. Is, is that uh, accurate? You're quite right about that, yes. And, and there were occasions, uh, more than one, where... 
in the course of these interviews, um, I had to stop asking questions and uh, bring discussions or line of inquiries to an end because it was too much for people. I wasn't in a position to both reveal, help them reveal issues that had gone on and recall, recall things that had happened to them and the emotion associated with it and so on, um, and, and help them then pack it all up again before I left. I, I, I wasn't in a position to you know, make an appointment next week and try and resolve some of those issues or be available on the phone subsequently. So I, I had to actually stop them speaking about these matters. So there were moments when I got partial information, and I was content with that because I'm, I'm not a professional psychologist going into that situation, and neither am I a historian. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an author and uh, writing uh, historical fiction, and I, I had no right to really disassemble how they packed away these traumatic memories and, and walk away without without helping them put them back together again. So, Right, and, and that makes sense, right? These are memories that people would have had for, you know, 70 years almost, and uh, to, to come in in an afternoon and unpack them all and then leave, you're right, that... that that there, there's got to be some ethical issues associated Correct. with that, yeah. that that you have to walk a boundary on. Indeed, indeed. It's not an easy boundary because once you get no. people started, of course, they want to speak. Uh, I do want to get back to the pushback that you mentioned earlier as well. This is something that is very interesting to me and I think just everyone within the historical community as new stories get told and new things come to light. And, and I'm reminded of some of the work that I do with students who we always ask them now increasingly, like what isn't being included in the broad narrative histories that you get taught? And over the past month, I've had some great discussions with some, some high school students from across the country as part of a program that I work on. And they're really attuned to what tends to be missing in history and and what i've found mm -hmm. is that whenever new stories are told the things that are missing from the grand narrative get put forward there's a lot of pushback from from a, a group of people and for whatever reason who either don't want to hear that history or don't believe that history don't feel so it's relevant to that national narrative especially if it challenges big narratives as well so the fact that you got some pushback in this particular case, I find that really fascinating. And from your perspective, what was the motivation of some of the folks who were pushing back against what you were doing and, and the stories that you were telling? And what was your response to some of that? Well, I try not to respond to it. Um, That's but, probably the best thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not averse to taking on challenges and people who express inaccurate views, but I think um, I'm, I'm actually not a spokesman for the Digabot people. Um, I'm, uh, if, if anything, I'm as a, an English-Canadian on the side of the perpetrator um, who is reflecting on what we as perpetrators did to an immigrant population. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, to, to take them on. But I think this is a very conservative place. And... Um, uh, and Canada, in lots of ways, is a very conservative place. And in some ways, we wear our Canadian national story um, uh, on our sleeves somewhat. And uh, it, 
I'm very proud to be Canadian, and I, I love the fact that we aspire to be inclusive and uh, um, and struggle with our democracy all the time, trying to make it better, and uh, uh, that we're liberal and so on. And uh, I like all that, and I'm very proud of it. But it's, we haven't finished finished the job, and, and I think some people believe um, are inclined to believe that we have uh, we are we've done the job of being good people because we're Canadian and any challenge to that I think sometimes rattles that that confidence of that belief it doesn't in my mind rattle us at all we've still got lots to be proud of and there's lots of many there's many good things that we've done and we are doing in the world and we just have to compare our attitude to wanting to be better um, to wanting to be inclusive to what's going on south of the 49th parallel and, and you know we suddenly realize what a contrast there is between our country and, and some other countries. So um, I don't want to be pessimistic or be down on Canada, but there is a dark history to Canada, and there's so much of it available if you only want to look. And to deny it creates the risk of doing it again, and that, that troubles me. But there are people who just can't tolerate the notion that Canadians are, Canadian, the Canadian story, the Canadian... Um, tale that we have, narrative as you put it, um, is not completely true and already complete. If it ever gets complete, we're really in trouble, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it should never finish, right? Like that's, it's always going to be evolving and it's always going to be changing and that's okay. And I, I always find it troubling when people look to the past to feel good about themselves. You know, I, it's it's hard, right? Because I think history is a really good teacher and the experiences of the past can help to guide us today. And, and sometimes that those experiences were very positive and very uplifting and very good. And sometimes they weren't, but they're equally valid in their, the experiences and the importance of having those stories told is equal as to whether or not it makes us comfortable or makes us uncomfortable because it's all part of the tapestry of what this country what this country is and i'm curious to know as someone who does historical fiction do you think that sometimes stories might be more easily digested through historical fiction because you have now i don't want to be overly critical of historians who write like pure history but you know you know authors who write historical fiction typically you know are much better at crafting a narrative creating characters that people can connect with do you think that that is an effective means to disseminate some of the more uncomfortable stories from our past well i really do i think you're absolutely right with that and, and you know and the re the reason is that um History um, uh, is is fairly dry. I mean, it, there are exceptions. I don't know if you've ever read um, Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver, for example, which is uh, uh, this is an example where if you were to pick that book up and start reading, it's very difficult to put it down. It's about 500 pages long, but it's a fabulously written, beautiful book. Um, um, so there are exceptions, but generally speaking, history is written in a very dry way. And I'm glad of that because it tries to provide some clarity, um, which then can be debated and, and, and so on. 
but um, it's devoid of phenomenology, which is what brings history alive for me. So the experience of the individual is critical in in relating to the events of that time. And uh, I think only it's only in literature, it's only in a novel that you can you can do that. You couldn't really venture into the phenomenology of a particular experience or process um, uh, with uh, and still be a historian you would be you you would be transgressing into the world of uh, psychology sociology politics perhaps um at best literature at worst um and and thereby losing the rigor of the historical process um so my my sense is that uh, historical fiction has the advantage of connecting people at an emotional level to uh, to that time period and those events in a way that they wouldn't be in history. And more than that, I'm not sure how many people browse the history section of bookshops. Right. I'm, sure there, there, I'm sure there are a lot, but there are many more who um, would browse uh, the fiction bookshelves. Yes. And, you, and usually when I'm in chapters, I have to say that when I go over to the history section, I'm, I'm not usually having to elbow people out of my way. Exactly. And and I guess that's how it should be. But we still have to find ways of telling a story and, and having a discourse. And, you know, I have really enjoyed listening to some of the, the reviews of The Kissing Fence, uh, which generally speaking have been very positive. Um, but uh, from from time to time, I, I get that kind of surprise. Good heavens, did this really happen here? And that's that's exactly what I want people to say. I, I want people to say, good heavens, did we really do that? This was not all that long ago. And the consequences of what we had done in 1950s, while the Canadian government and the BC government did, rumble to this day. They still have not been settled. And, and in fact, I heard today of a, of a, a Duke of Boer, uh, a, a, a man middle-aged who uh, from the Dukabor community who uh, became uh, disengaged and uh, was struggling despite being married and having children took his own life. Today I heard that story, oh, wow. and it was and it was connected to um, the story of Nadenbo. So his parents connected to the story of Nadenbo. Children growing up, having their own children, but still still struggling. A bit like how I described events in my novel, um, but um, not being able to cope anymore. Um, and, you know, you don't get that in a history book, but the meaning of these events that happened in 1950 suddenly translated into a very emotional, real event right now. Nothing could be more powerful. The next most powerful is to do that in fiction. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, and I think too that it's e it's easy sometimes. I don't know if it's easy, but it happens certainly for historians that just myself included, and some of the stuff that I've worked on in my career that numbers become almost meaningless. And the larger the numbers come, the harder it is to generate meaning from them. So when you talk about war or or other sort of violent things and you talk about the amount of casualties, for instance, the numbers become so large that they're almost too too large to comprehend. And it's hard for us to really tell that story in this macro way, but when you break it down to an individual and say, here's this person's experience, 
again, it's not always going to be representative of the whole, but it creates almost a human to human connection between yeah. the historian and the person who they're reading about. And then the same would happen as the historian goes and tells that story the same way uh, you would do as, as you tell people's stories. It creates more humanity than a pure here's the raw numbers, here's the raw data would. And that's yeah. what I like about historical fiction is that the, the I don't want to say the reintroduction of humanity, but maybe the focus on the humanity within these stories. Yes, you're, you're so right about that. Um, and I, I, I didn't use the term humanity, but I guess that was, I used the term phenology, phenomenology right. and, and emotion. But we were, I think we were probably talking about the same thing. Yeah. But there's a, a, another slight layer to, to that, of, uh, uh, make it a slightly larger perspective. I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say is um, that sometimes history will concentrate on events and uh, the inference that you could draw from the, from the action that occurred in those events um, is sometimes not really understood um, in the whole context of other events. So there was the uh, example of uh, Operation Cristova, or was referred to as Operation Snatch, uh, it became known as that, when in um, it was the 18th of January, 1955, when the RCMP crashed through doors in Cristova and picked out um, and, and pulled children from their bed and their hiding places and took them away to New Denver. The children were screaming in terror and they're under the bed. It was really awful. Um, so people heard the reaction to that, and subsequently there was a lot of reaction to it uh, by the Duke of Boys, and they were, uh, there was a great deal of distress expressed. And, and um, there was some surprise at the extent of that. After all, these children who country thought, the province thought, were being neglected in their education, that's why they were being picked up, because they weren't in English school. Um, they were being treated well when they were taking into taking into New Denver, um, and so why why are we having all this uh, wailing of wailing and gnashing of teeth and so on? What people don't understand about that event, and this is where reading history dryly um, sometimes misses out, is that two decades before that, uh, 352 children were picked up and their parents were arrested for nudity, put on Piers Island, um, just off um, Victoria, uh, as a prison island. But of those 352 children, there were three babies who were went missing and were reported to have died with no record or consequence or outcome. Other of those 352 children were sent to uh, re uh, re reform schools, some were fostered, some were adopted, some were lost to the community and never got back. It's possible that there are still Dukabor children out there who don't know that Dukabor as a result of those events. And so when the RCMP came through the doors in Crestova just two decades later, it was the remaining children who knew of that experience. And some of their peers would have been those disappeared and um, uh, who were had their own children taken away in New Denver. So it wasn't just a common anxiety or fear that was going on about 
you know, your children being taken away by the authorities, which would be traumatic enough. You know, it was that that terror was in the DNA. It was a different order of terror. They really genuinely believed at that moment that their children may never be seen again. And you know, history doesn't get that. You know, you only get that from understanding the experience of those mothers who um, who were fought, effectively fought off the police from having their children removed, and that community who subsequently tried to hide the children for years afterwards in various cunning ways, making clever, more and more clever ways of, of hiding them from the police who were still hunting the children for, for years afterwards. Um, these are extraordinary events, but you know I don't think history would ever really capture the meaning of that for that community and understand why why when all the children came out and there's so much discontent in that community and suddenly they had an influx of you know 150 children who were militant and angry. Right. It's absolutely no wonder why the Kootenays were on fire for the better part of a decade. Hmm. So for people who either aren't from BC or, or aren't Dukabor themselves, what do you think that the audience, sort of the, the non-directly associated with the story audience, what do you think they'll get out of this book? And, and why do you think people will be attracted to this story? Well, of course, the, it, this book is about the Duke of Boers. It is about BC. It is about the, uh, Canada and so on. But it's not just about the Duke of Boers. It's really a story about you know, what we are from generations ago and how our sense of self and of place in the world can be corrupted with the destruction of uh, lineage, continuity, family, community, and so on. And, of course, I've said this before, it's plainly enough among displaced peoples and Aboriginal cultures around the world. But actually, it's true of all of us. And if we look carefully, we can find that thread drawn through years, as I was saying before, bringing the broad swathe of social, political, and economic influence and so on um, through to an individual. If we look, we can see that thread drawn through dec decades and generations before us, which influence our, like the choices we make um, every day. Uh, you sometimes have to look more carefully, but generally you can find it. And we can see in many cultures around the world that, that the choices we make are often supported by values of individually, uh, individuality, particularly in the West, you know, opportunity and greed. <laughs> but And these values, we have soar in importance over those that are found amongst the traditional Dukabor people. Uh, those values include uh, the value of community, the burden of responsibility, to faith and obligation to others. You know, our society, um, and particularly south of the border, nurtures the sense of entitlement, of acting in your own interest, accepting the manipulation of truth as a fact of life. You know, it's kind of become child's play to resist the influence of expectations that might be imposed on anybody by what's right and wrong these days. And without that burden of moral expectation or the that consideration of others, financial and material success, of course, is possible, almost certainly it's actually more likely. But what happens to us in that process? You know, along with that so-called success comes all sorts of things, risk of profound human failure, loss of confusion, of a sort of existential kind. Um, so the question of this book is, what does it take 
to see that kind of failure coming mm. and avert the disaster of that existential crisis. And, and secondarily, but perhaps more specifically, what stops us from letting go of what we think is important in favor of what is important? And so that, that's the kind of question I was wanting readers to take away with them in, in their mind. You know, why don't I let go of all of these toxic things that make me unhappy, a job I don't like, um, you know, affiliations that are not helping me, um, uh, material wealth that is, is, is dogging me and hangs around my neck. Um, what, what stops people from saying, well, hang on a minute, what, what is important in my life? What, what are the things that are going to satisfy my soul, as it were, right. and, and turn to those? Um, and if it helps a few people ask that kind of question, then uh, I'll be pleased. Yeah, and definitely those are issues that we all struggle with and, and universal themes for sure that, that are put forth. And uh, just a wonderful story here. And again, the book is The Kissing Fence. Brian, where can people find more information about you if they want to learn more about you? And where can they pick up the book? Well, uh, Caitlin Press is the uh, publisher of the book, and they can be found easily on the uh, on the Internet. And they'll do it direct. Uh, it's also on Amazon, of course. Most bookstores will either have it or can get it for you very quickly. Um, so it shouldn't be any difficult to get your hands on it. I think it's now it's now in an ebook format as well as a, a, a paperback format. Um, and I, I have a blog. It's called Entelic, uh Consulting. So uh, that's E-N-T-E-L-I-C Consulting. Um, and there's a blog on there in which I sometimes rant and rave about various things of this kind and talk about my book from time to time. Terrific. So we encourage everybody to check it out. And uh, if you head over to activehistory.ca, we'll link to all this stuff as well. And yes, there is an ebook out too. So I'm always excited when the ebooks uh, come out. Uh, that's my preferred way of reading. So uh, again, the book, The Kissing Fence by Brian Thomas Peter. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. A delightful pleasure. Thanks very much. So there you have it. My discussion with Brian Thomas Peter. My thanks to him for joining me today. And again, the book is The Kissing Fence from our friends out there at Caitlin Press. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, the ratings, the comments, all those things that help other people find the show, keeps us going, and just uh, you know makes us feel good when we see those sorts of things. Uh, you can also reach out to us to let us know what you want to hear on this show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. But of course, do check out activehistory.ca as we head into the Labor Day long weekend. The schedule is ramping up a lot of great stuff over there over the past few weeks and certainly moving ahead as we get back into the swing of things post Labor Day, at least as much of the swing of things as we can get into in these crazy times. So, Thank you again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, do stay safe. Enjoy the long weekend. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.